Well, thanks again uh, for, for being here and for joining us and for being the church, um, bringing it into uh, this room here. I read a, a, about a study this week that was uh, conducted by Utah Valley University. Did anyone ever hear of Utah Valley University? All right. Um, it's all right. This is legit, though. They uh, studied about 425 different people, uh, 425 people who use Facebook, okay? So this would include people like you and me. They did this study, and, and over a period of time, they asked a bunch of questions charting uh, how many friends do you have on Facebook? How much time do you spend on Facebook? How many friends do you have that you've never actually met on Facebook? And then they charted that along with how much happiness uh, is in that person's life. And as they did these studies, they asked questions like, how much do you agree with these statements? They would say things like, other people are happier than I am. Other people's lives are better than mine. I would gladly trade my life for the sake of another person on Facebook. And here's what they found after uh, doing all of these studies and, and interviews and stuff like that. They found that as a person's time on Facebook increased, their level of happiness decreased. And here's why. I mean, there's a, there's a ton of different factors, but the, this isolated certain things. And this is what that, that study found. The more time you spend on Facebook, the more you begin to think that other people's lives are a lot more happier and a lot more fulfilling than your life is. And they, they asked why and all these questions. And here's what, they, here's what they figured out. We're getting deeper and deeper into it. They said, when you look at pictures of other people, okay, the more time you look at other people's pictures and, and stalk them like some of y'all do, right, um, the more time you spend on other people's Facebooks, you look at these pictures and people don't put up pictures when they're like, depre- not, not usually, maybe not they used to when they're like really emo and stuff like that. But these days, people don't put up pictures of when they're like sad. Hey, take a picture of me. I'm really down. I'm really depressed. Hey, take a picture of me because life stinks. Hey, I just got fired. I just broke up my girlfriend. Take a picture of me. They don't do that. They take pictures of them at the beach or having fun or, hey, let's all go out and celebrate somebody's birthday and take a picture. We're all happy and everyone is happy. And so they realize, they think in their minds that everyone else's life Happiness is a constant, but for me, it usually comes and goes. And so they begin to realize and begin to think that as I spend more time on Facebook, they think that other people's lives are a whole lot better than theirs are. And so here you are Friday night, you don't have house church, you don't have anything going on that night and, or Saturday night, and you couldn't get a ride to a youth meeting. And so what do you do when you're bored? Here's what you do. You go on Facebook, right? So you're on Facebook and you're clicking through your friend's pictures. and Oh, they look so happy. And um, I, I saw this thing said like 10 different kinds of Facebook users, and it says there's some people who look at everything, but they never like or comment on anything like that, and so maybe that's you, and you're looking through these pictures, and you're like, oh, they're so happy, and look how great their lives are, and, and look at me, my life is so stinky, because here I am stalking people's albums on Facebook, and that's how we begin to think. The longer we spend time on Facebook, you look at other people's lives and say, their lives look a whole lot better than my life. You ever, you ever do that? You ever look on Facebook and look at people, especially if they're not following Christ, you watch, look at people's pictures, and, and I don't know what it is that they might be doing. Maybe they're at uh, you know, a, a party, or they're at a, a club, or they're hanging out, whatever it might be that they're doing. And you look at these pictures, and you're like, man, they don't, have to, they don't have to come to church on Sunday. They don't have to come to church on Saturday. They don't have all these meetings and stuff like that. And I just wish I could trade places with them. You ever feel like that? I don't know if you felt like that before or not. But it's a pretty good, it's a pretty good, there's a pretty good indication that at least some of the people that Peter's writing to in this letter felt that way. Not about Facebook, but they're looking at other people in their lives. Looking at other people, people who don't have to follow Christ, and they're like, you know what? I wish that I could just switch places with them because to follow Christ for the people of God that Peter's writing to, to follow Christ came with a heavy cost, came with a heavy price. 
And as they're looking at the lives of other people, he's wondering, you know what? What if it would, what would it, what would it be like just for a day or just for two days or just for a whole lifetime? If I were just to exchange places with them, trade places with them, if I were to take their life and they were to take my life, how much better would my life be? You ever ask yourself that question? If I wasn't following Jesus, if I could trade life with somebody else at school or with someone else at work or with one of those coworkers, maybe, maybe by now I'd have a different kind of uh, a relationship with my spouse or maybe by now I'd, I'd, I'd have a different kind of uh, happiness in life. Maybe you feel like that. And in Peter's writing, in the next section that he writes, he's saying why we should not think that way. It's easy to think that the grass is greener. But Peter's going to come and he's going to tell us that, you know what, the grass is greenest right underneath the place where you're standing. First Peter chapter 1, we're going to read verses 10 through 16. And, and as we do, it's a, 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 just a fascinating passage. It's going to take a, a little bit to unpack it. But I think as we get to this place, we're going to realize that where we are, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, is a place uh, that is the envy of so many people. First Peter 1.10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. This is God's word. What is Peter trying to communicate to, again, these scattered saints who are suffering throughout Asia Minor? As they've been thinking about the persecution that was beginning to come and the persecution that would come. Again, I don't think Peter wanted his people to suffer, nor do we want our people to suffer. I don't want you to suffer, nor do I want you to go through persecution necessarily, because I don't want you to go through the pain. But again, we talk about this now because a day is coming when it will happen, when you will be persecuted or when you will have to suffer for the sake of Christ. And if we don't hear about it, then we will be ill-prepared for that time when it comes. And so Peter's writing to this group of people who are maybe thinking, yeah, should I just pack it in? Is it even worth it to continue to live for Christ? Is it better for me to just kind of renounce my faith and, and, and not be at risk of my life and just to, to go to the other side? And Peter's saying no, and I'll tell you why. Okay, the first thing that he says here, we find this in verses 10 through 12. The first thing that he says is that prophets and angels long for what you have. Prophets and angels long for what you have. It says in verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. What is he saying? He's saying, okay, you remember all those prophets, okay, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Nehemiah, Daniel, these people that are the heroes of their faith, okay? 
He's saying these people recorded faithfully the things that the Spirit of God in them was telling them to record, and they're recording these things over uh, 1,500 years, okay? 300 different prophecies by 25 different prophets. It's not just like one or two people who kind of like, oh, let's, let's kind of co- corroborate and, and collaborate together and come up with this thing. It's over 1,500 years. That's starting from 500 AD till now, if you were to, to try and calculate that. 1,500 years, there were 30, uh, 25 different prophets who are writing independently of each other who recorded 300 different prophecies, and they would write things like, he was going to be born to a virgin. He was going to be born in Bethlehem. He was going to be a worker of miracles. He was going to be a suffering servant. He was going to be sold for 30 pieces of silver. He was going to be accused wrongfully. He was going to be betrayed. He was going to die, and he was going to rise again. 300 different prophecies, and as they're writing these things, they're longing, they're hearing, they're being faithful to God, and they're saying, God, when? When will this thing come to pass? And it says, when, when it says they searched intently and with greatest care, the picture that he's giving here, there's a lot of different word pictures I have to explain here, but the picture that he's giving is of a military officer and he's going house to house looking intently for something that he's trying to find. I was trying to think of a movie and I, I asked some of our youth teachers yesterday, we had a meeting and one of our guys, Kenny, was like, oh, it's like that movie Behind Enemy Lines where Owen Wilson is this American soldier and I think he gets captured by these Serbians or Bosnians or Croatian people and they're going house to house looking from they're flipping up overturning things trying to find where he is they're intently searching to find this person that they're looking for and he's saying the prophets as they're writing these things are looking intently to find out okay god you said this was going to happen but is it going to happen now is it going to happen when's all this going to happen and they're longing to see and god says you know what you're not going to be able to see it It says in verse 12 it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you. Sometimes this is our call in life. That you have been called to minister to a specific group of people, but that you will never see the fruit of your work in your lifetime. Would you be willing to serve Christ if that was your lot in life? I say this sometimes, but would you be willing to pray for a revival in our city, even if you would never live to see that revival, would you still be okay serving and praying as if that were going to be your ministry in life? Let me put it another way. There are, there's constantly throughout history, generation after generation, a group of people that God raises up and says, you will invest your life, but it won't be for something that you will ever see. Many of us whose parents are immigrants would spend early waking uh, hours in prayer, investing every week, every day, praying and praying and praying and filling up this well of blessing for the generations to come. They would never see these blessings, but they're praying for you and for me and for generations yet unborn. And I say this all the time because I believe it with all of my heart that the reason churches are standing today in our culture and in our generation is because we are the product of people who've been investing hours and hours and hours in the prayer. And I wonder, will we be willing to pray for the generation to come behind us? Not just five minutes, not just 10 minutes, but will we be willing to go to the mat and pray and to store up a a, a bottle of tears and prayer for the generation to come? Who's going to pray for our children? When when our parents and and their grandparents die out, who's going to pray for the generations to come? Who's going to pray for your children, for my children? Who's going to pray for, for, for Phoebe and for, and for, and for uh, Emmeline and for, for Evelyn? Who's going to pray for these people, Rahan? Who's going to pray for these children to come? 
Who's going to spend hours and hours and hours on their knees praying for these people like people have done for us? I don't want the well to run dry, my friends. I don't. And it's not going to cut it for us to pray five minutes a week or 10 minutes a week or 30 minutes a week praying for these things when, when we've been the product of people praying countless hours for, on our behalf. It was revealed to them that they're not serving you themselves, but they're serving generations yet to come. And sometimes God calls us and raises us up to be a people who will pray for the sake of people who are yet unborn. Who's going to pray for our grandchildren? It's not enough for us to say, yeah, I don't need to recycle. I don't need to pray because that's going to affect not my life, but the life of people 100 years later. Could it be that our lives are meant for something a little bit bigger than our own lives? Praise God that the kingdom of God is so much bigger and it continues to go even after our lives are done. Because God oftentimes calls us to pray for and live in and invest in something that's going to far outlast our years. And sometimes we will never see, a lot of times we will never see what God is calling us to invest our lives into. And that's what he was calling. And these prophets were faithful, though they wouldn't see it for centuries later. They would not even see it. And they're longing to see it. You see, you are the envy of prophets who are writing and they long to see with their eyes the fulfillment of the things that they wrote. But we on the other side of Calvary are able to see this. He's saying the grass is not greener on the other side. You have to understand. And then he goes on and he says, even angels long to look into these things. When he says they long to look, it's just this word of of an irresistible desire, of, of just like this overcoming urge that angels long to see the things that you and I are living in. Do you believe this? Sometimes we wish that we could trade places with angels, right? But they're saying, if I could switch places with you, holy cow. Peter's saying, look, your life is pretty, is pretty difficult. You're being persecuted. You're being passed over for certain positions because of your loyalty to Christ. But did you know that angels around the throne of God long to have what you have? And let, me, let me try and, 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 and push into this a little bit. The picture that he's giving of these angels is that they're standing on their tiptoes trying to look in to see something that they cannot see. Angels long to look at these. They're standing on tiptoe, and when they're not doing that, it says they're stooping down to look because they're trying to get a glimpse of it. They're trying to look into the salvation that we have, and they can't see it. He's saying angels are longing for it. They're desperate to see it. and It's like, they're, it's like a little kid at a crowded concert hall or something they're trying to look up and they're trying to see and they're like i can't see i can't see it and people are, are are just blocking their view they just can't get there it's like you ever been on the inside of an inside joke and then someone comes from the outside and they're like hey what are you guys talking about and you're like busting your knees laughing and you're so your your stomach is hurting and you're just it's such a good such a good joke and and, and this person comes along and they're like what are you guys laughing about like oh yeah, yeah, it's just it's an inside joke and they're like let me in let me in and so you try and explain it to them and like I don't get it. You're like, isn't that funny? Like, I, I don't get it. And so you explain it again. And like, yeah, you know, I, I, I still don't get it. Like, All right, let, me, let me try and explain it this way. And they say, I still don't get it. So someone else explains it. They, they just can't get it. Think this is, this is the plight of the angels. These angels who, they, they sit up enthroned in heaven and they worship God. They sing songs to God all the time. They have no sin around them. They're in the presence of God. And yet they long to have what you and I have. Do you understand this? They long to look into these things. They long to see. They can never sing. I'll never know how much it cost 
to see my sin upon the cross. They will never be able to sing that and understand it. They'll never be able to say, thank you for the cross, my friend. They'll never be able to sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. They'll never be able to say that. They'll never be able to say my sin was deeper than the sea, but your love went deeper still. They'll never be able to see that. He's saying, angels long to look into that. If you can sing that song with honesty, if you can sing that song from your heart, then you are the envy of countless angels all around and every single prophet of old long to see what you have. Understand how great your salvation is, people of God. This Wednesday at at our prayer meeting, we've been going through this thing where we're talking about how do you know that you're growing? And one of the things that, that we talked, what we talked about last week was we become more and more aware of our sin. And so we had a time as we're worshiping and as we're hearing the word and we're just moving into prayer, just had a time where we could just open up the time and, and people just confess their sins out loud. And not just things that we all struggle with, but things as, as we allow the spirit of God to soak into our hearts and allow repentance to rise up from us. And and the reason we did this was by hearing other people share, we could begin to hear and identify with them so that we could realize how deep our sin really goes. It's not just lust. It's not just anger. It's not just pride. It's not just laziness, but it goes deeper. And so people sharing things like, Pastor Albert, I'm just kidding. (laughs) People sharing things like, I only love the people that I find it easy to love. I get angry and I get bitter and I get judgmental at people. I get lazy with my time because I want to guard my own comforts. Just people just coming out and, and, and sharing different things that they wrestle with. My prayerlessness, my lack of, my lack of desire to, to reach out to people who are different from me. And, and as we're, we're, we're praying these things and people are as, as sharing these things, I'm feeling in my heart, this is me. Like all of these things are me and it's just pressing into my heart the reality and the depth that I'm a whole lot worse than I thought I was. I came into this prayer meeting thinking that I'm pretty bad, but I left, I, I moved into this place where I realized that I am so desperate in need of the grace of God. And as we spend some time in repentance and then we spend some time replaying the gospel, that we are forgiven, that God holds our sin against us no more. My heart was just filled with this overwhelming sense of gratitude for the gospel and for the cross and, and just, just, just shedding tears of, of gratitude that, God, you would love me at such a cost. And my heart was just being stirred and just being moved and, and being set and, and just shaken by the reality of the gospel. And it says the angels will never be able to experience these things. And they long for what you and I have. Do you understand how great it is, the salvation that you have? That you have been granted all of this stuff and angels would die for what we have. And they would kill for what we have. That you are the envy of angels and prophets and all the Old Testament saints. They long to have what you have. If only they could know. If only they could for one moment sing about the wonders of grace. And they long to peer into and see and desire to see what it is that these human beings have to be called a child of God. What amazing, amazing grace. How great is salvation In your eyes, people of God. This is a wonder of wonders. That we have been forgiven at such a cost. Don't envy them. Realize that you are the envy of all the world. And then he goes on. 
And he talks about hope and he talks about salvation. And he says, hope doesn't sit still, but expresses itself in action. If you are a recipient of this kind of salvation, of this kind of hope, then understand that hope does not sit still, but it expresses itself in action. Hope always acts. In verse 13, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. It's, it's, it's amazing that every imperative in scripture begins with this idea of therefore every ethical imperative every command of god is always given after the good news of the gospel after the reality of your salvation he never says go and do all of these things and then god will accept you and then you can be saved then you can be a child of god he says because you have all this Therefore, you go in action because you've been given all of these things, because you've been forgiven, because you have hope, because you have life, because you have eternity awaiting you, because you have something that angels long for. Therefore, move into action. See, I forget who it was. This author was writing and he said, the, and I've said this before, but I'll reiterate, says the problem with today and why there's such an, a, a weakness in our, in, our, in our Christian faith today is because we spend all of our time telling God the great things we can do for him. Whereas the early church spent all their time telling people all the great things God did for them. Isn't that the difference between the church of the first century and the church of the 21st century? The early church, you read their stories, you read their prayers, you read all the things that they say. And it's not about God, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. It's about all the things that God did for them. Whereas today we talk so much about what can I do for God? What can I do for the kingdom of God? You see, he's saying it's not first about what you can do. It's first about what God has done. He's done all this stuff. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be revealed, on the hope on the grace to be revealed. See, what he's saying, there's three verbs here, but one of them is the main verb. Okay, the main verb is to set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. And then prepare your minds for action and be self-controlled. Show how we're supposed to set our hope on that. When he says set your hope, a lot of times our idea of hope is something that, that may or may not happen, right? I hope that uh, Tim Tebow can win the Super Bowl. I hope that my husband will let me go shopping. <laughs> I hope that my parents will let me go on this mission trip. I, I hope and hope and hope. And, and sometimes these things are going to happen. Sometimes they're not going to happen. But a lot of times there's not much we can do about it. When the Bible talks about hope, it's talking about a reality that is certain to reach its fulfillment. And the Bible talks about hope and says, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. It's talking about something not like it may or may not happen, but is an absolute certainty. It is a reality that is so guaranteed that you can begin to live in this hope right now. That's what he's saying. Set your hope fully on that because hope, okay, when you have hope, it always leads to action. That's why he says, here's how you set your hope. Prepare your minds for action and be self-controlled. You, you understand what it means when you say hope always acts. Hope never sits idly by. Think of people who are depressed. They have no hope. They can't get out of their houses. They can't get up and exercise. They can't do anything. Hope moves. Lack of hope sits. And if you have hope of Christ in you, then you can't just sit down and do nothing. Do you get what I'm saying? 
it, it, it's, it's, really, it, it's pretty simple here. If you have hope, then you just, don't just sit there and do nothing, twiddling your thumbs and say, okay, I've got this great hope and I've got this glorious hope. Therefore, I'm going to sit on it until I ride out into heaven. Say, no, 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 no. Hope doesn't sit idly by. It moves into action. People who have no hope sit there because they can't do anything. There's no reason for them to do anything. They just sit there and they just, there's nothing for them to do. But when you have hope, he says, here's how you set your hope fully on the grace to be revealed. is by preparing your minds for action and by being self-controlled. Okay, these two things work together. Literally what it means when he, says, when he says to prepare your minds for action, he's saying, gird your loins for action. In the time that, that Peter's writing, the, the, the robes that men would wear would go down to their feet. And it would be very uncomfortable. It's kind of like wearing a man wearing a wedding dress. It's very difficult to move. They would have this belt around them. And if you wanted to move, you wanted to go to battle, you wanted to, uh, for some reason, you need to hurry or you needed to, to do some work. What they would do is they would take the bottom of their robe and they would roll it up and they would fold it into their belt. That's called girding your loins. And so they could be free to move around. Okay, that's what they would do. He's saying, prepare your minds for action. That's what he's saying, is pick up your stuff, tuck it into your belt so that you can move. Basically, here's what he's saying. Whatever distracts you and distracts your mind from moving, get rid of those distractions. And it says, be self-controlled. Literally, what it means, it says, be sober. Okay, be of sober mind. When you're not sober, the opposite of being sober is being drunk. When you're drunk, you can't think right. You can't think straight. Right? How many of you guys have ever been drunk? I'm just kidding. When you're drunk, you can't think straight. Your judgment is clouded. You want to do one thing, but you go end up doing another thing because you can't think properly. That's what happens when you're drunk. He's saying, don't be drunk in your mind. Be sober. Be sober so that your mind can be ready for action. Whatever it is that distracts you from moving to action, get rid of those things because the battle begins in your mind, people of God. How many times have we been incapacitated from doing the work that God calls us to because our minds have already lost the battle? Because in our minds, we believe that we're worthless. In our minds, we believe that we can't do it. In our minds, we believe that they're not going to accept us. In our minds, we believe that we've already, we're already fallen way behind everybody else and we can't get to that point. Saying the battle begins in your mind, guys. If you've got hope, then you need to preach that hope into yourself so that you're not distracted in your mind from moving into action. That's why he says, prepare your minds for action. Don't listen to the lies that are being fed into you. You've got a glorious hope. You need to go. We've got work to do. Let's go. Let's move. Don't let our minds cripple us into thinking that you have no part to play. Don't let your mind lie to you. Don't be listening to the lies that tell you that you're just a a, a sixth grader. You have no part to play in the kingdom of God. Or don't let your mind believe that you're a new believer. You can't do it or, or that you struggled and so that you can't be accepted by God. Don't let your mind believe these lies, he's saying. Prepare your minds for action. Whatever distracts you, get rid of those things so that you can go and do the work that God has called you to do. You've got work to do. You've got work to do, he's saying. Prepare your minds for action, whatever distracts. Therefore, if there's a magazine that you look at, that you read, that's robbing you of the life of Christ, whatever's clouding your spiritual judgment, it says eradicate these things from your lives. Get rid of these things from your lives. If you're reading Teen Magazine or whatever magazine that's telling you all of these things that are telling you about how to live in this life that goes against the word of God, then don't just say, okay, I'll read it, but I won't believe it. Get rid of that thing. 
If you're looking at uh, TV shows or watching movies or, or reading internet sites that are not healthy for you, then get rid of these things. If these things are clouding your judgment so that you can't move to action, then get rid of it. That's what he's saying. Gird your minds, gird the loins of your mind so that you can move and do the work that you've been called to do. If there are people that you're hanging out with that are clouding your judgment, then we need to move away from these things. If there are places that we're going to that are poisoning our hearts and poisoning and polluting the way that we think, then move away from those places. Okay, what are those things in your life that are clouding your judgment from being able to move into action? Saying whatever these things are, identify them, grasp onto these things and get rid of these things so that you can move because there's work to do. You are not going to be able to live the life God's called you to do if you're constantly being bombarded by all of these things that are tripping you up as you try and move into action. You've got a glorious hope, people of God. He says, choose to live in that hope. Choose to live in, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's the second thing that he says, in light of all of these things. And then the last thing that he says, we'll see this in in verses uh, 14 and 15. The last thing that he says is we are set apart for God. So don't go back to the old life. Okay, we have been set apart for God, so don't go back to your old life. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, not just on your Sundays. Be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. He says, you have been called to be a holy people. That whoever you are, Victoria Yang, Alex Pack, John Park, you have been set apart. You have been called holy, just as your father is holy. And he says, be holy in all that you do. This word holy, as they're reading it, has this connotation of being set apart. Completely set apart. That God is holy means he is set apart from anything that is sinful, defiled, anything that is dirty. God is set apart from these things. And he's saying, as God is set apart from those things, so you shall be set apart as well. So you should be holy, set apart from all that defiles, all that pollutes, all that robs you of the purity and the holiness and the life of Christ in you. Be set apart. Be holy, people of God. The Old Testament, they would take common things, And when they were prayed over, they would be considered consecrated, set apart for holy purposes. God is saying, look, think about your life. You have been set apart for God. You've been set apart for a holy purpose. Don't let your life be lived for unholy things. This is a beautiful calling that we have. You are specially marked by God, for something of his design. When I was in college, there were these three, uh, three college girls who would uh, always be inviting people over to eat at their place and because they're constantly having people over. It was always, you know, whatever it was that they would make, they would have this, like, you know, paper plates and, and silver, uh, plastic silverware and, and paper cups and stuff like that, plastic cups, and they would serve all these people. One day they invited our campus minister over. And they said, today, we need to, we need to bring out um, the most expensive china that we have. 
We need to bring out these nice gold-plated plates and, and these nice uh, forks and nice knives and nice spoons so that we can show that this is a day that is special. It's different than any other day. Saying they don't use their fine china on, on, just on any given day. But it's only for special purposes, only for special occasions that they bring out this best silverware, the best china that they've got. And God is saying, you are the best china that I've got, that you have been set apart for holy and beautiful and special purposes. Don't let your life be wasted on cheap things. You have been set apart, people of God. Don't go back to your old life. You don't live like that anymore. You used to live that way, it says, when you lived in ignorance, but you're not ignorant anymore. You're not ignorant. You don't do the same things now when you're 20 years old, 30 years old, 15 years old that you did when you were two years old. You don't do the same things. Why would you go back to that old life? You know so much better now. You know so much better. Don't do that anymore. You've been set apart. Go and be holy as God called to be holy. Don't compromise. Don't mix in with the things of this world. You have been called to something so much greater. But here's what we do sometimes is we think about the life that we used to have. And we think maybe just one time, just one time. And every time we say just one time, it breaks the moral and spiritual fiber and our willingness and our ability to say no the next time. Just one time, we say. This um, past couple weeks, we, uh, it's been a little bit difficult for Olive and me at, at home. Uh, when we were trying to teach Manny how to sleep on her own, there would be nights where she would just kind of climb out of her crib and then she would open the door and she would run out. And we were like, oh, my gosh, what happened? And, and so we decided that we need to put an end to this once and for all. So we put this door lock on so that uh, even though she tried to turn the door handle down, she couldn't get out. We basically locked her in. It was like her little Alcatraz. And so she's locked in. And, and so this is how it went for a few months. And, and that, that, that door lock ended up falling off of our door. And so we're like, well, she's classically conditioned to know that even if she pulls it down, she can't get out. And so we figured she's locked in. So one night, it was about a couple weeks ago. She woke up in the middle of the night, and we're, you know the baby monitor's on, and so we're listening to, to all of this stuff. And, and she climbs out, uh, gets out of her bed, and she's speaking in Korean, and she says, just tonight, only tonight, I'm going to come out of the room, just tonight. And so she opens the door, and she comes running out, and we're like, what in the world happened? And, and then we see her, and we're like, okay. And she's like, just tonight, just tonight. And so Olive is patting her, okay, just tonight, and she puts her back to sleep. The next night, she wakes up in the middle of the night. We hear, just tonight, only tonight, only tonight, I'll come out of my room. And she comes running, and we're like, what in the world is going on? Every night, just tonight, just tonight, just tonight. And that's how we live a lot, isn't it? Just tonight. Just this once. I remember the way it used to be. I remember the old life. I just want to go back. Just tonight. And before you know it, it's not just tonight. It's night after night after night. And have weakened the spiritual and moral impulses of our heart so that we cannot say no. And God is saying, you have been set apart. You are special. You have a part to play in the expansion of my kingdom. Stand your ground, people of God. Stand your ground. You are holy 
And as your Father is holy, be holy. We think about this life. I hope, my, as I'm preparing this and I'm praying for this, my prayer is that we would never say, I want to exchange my life for the life of anybody else. Because we realize how amazing it is the gift that God has given to us. Why would we want to trade our life for something that's far worse, that's far less, that's far less meaningful, that is far less significant, that's far less satisfying? Why would we ever trade our lives down? Is that even thinkable? Who would ever want to do something like that? But then I think about something. This week, I thought about, I would, I would trade my life for someone worse than me. These days, Manny has, um, in her independent spirit, has been wanting to grow up into a sense, like she wants to help everything that um, Olive and I do now. And so whenever I brush my teeth, she says, Dad, I want to help you. And so she wants to sit up on the counter, and she wants to squeeze the toothpaste out, and, and she wants to squeeze the gel into my hand, and she wants to put, help me put my socks on, and she wants to help her mom cook in the kitchen too. And so the only way she'll actually eat vegetables is if she can take part in it by chopping up vegetables and then dropping it into whatever it is that her mommy's making. So this week, uh, she was helping uh, Olive cook. And it was a couple days, couple days ago, I came home. Um, it was in the evening time. I came home, and, and Manny had, um, uh, she was crying. And she had, her face was all red. She'd been crying because she had accidentally touched the stove. And she had a big uh, second-degree burn on her hand. And, and she was crying, and she was like, it hurts, and my hand hurts. And it was, um, in, in time, it, it eventually blistered up. And, and as she was crying, I, I wish that there was something I could do. You know, you hear this all the time. You hear this all the time, and you have probably experienced moments like this where you look at the helplessness of a situation of a person that you love, and there's nothing that they can do about their situation. And I couldn't, you know, pray that somehow um, I would take that upon myself, but I wished in that moment that I could trade places with someone who's in a worse spot than me. What motivates somebody? I want to trade down like that. The only sane explanation outside of masochism, which is not necessarily sane, the only motivation that would cause us to trade our lives for something worse than ours is love. It's the only reason. And so Jesus came and he traded places with us us who are so broken and so messed up and the wages of whose sin was death and there was no bargaining, no arguing, no fighting, no negotiating. That's it. It's death. You are separated eternally from God and you spend eternity in hellfire and damnation. That's your only lot in life. He says, out of love, I'll go to the cross. I'll live the life that they should have lived. And then I'll die the death that they should have died. He traded places with us so that we could trade up and have everything that Jesus Christ deserved and that everything that Jesus Christ had. And he says, this is your life. How could we ever 
want to trade this for someone of the world who doesn't have that. You are holy, people of God. You are special. Be holy. Be set apart. You've got a part to play. Let's move. Let's go. The world is waiting. Let's pray. As we pray, people of God, ask the Lord Jesus, help me to appreciate salvation. Help me to appreciate all that you've done for me. I didn't just need you the moment I gave my life to you, but I need you every day of my life. And the more I see my sin, the more I realize I need a savior. The more I realize my brokenness, the more I realize I need grace. The more I realize how awful my sins are, the more I realize I need you every day more than I needed you yesterday. God, I need you. Lord, I need you. And I don't want to go back to that old life. You have called me to something so much better. Let's spend some time in confession, spend some time in in thanksgiving, spend some time in asking God, mold me and shape me. Give me the strength to do what you're calling me to do. I don't want to go back to the way that I lived in the days of ignorance, but I know better now. I know more. I know grace. I know mercy. I know what angels long to know. I am blessed beyond measure. Help me to live in, live out that blessing in my life. Let's pray together for a few moments. Father, if there are ever to be a people in this life who are filled with childlike awe and wonder and joy, it ought to be your people. That we who were once dead have been made alive. That we who once were headed for hell have been set apart for an eternity in heaven. For those who once were hopeless and purposeless, whose lives were meaningless, you have given hope and purpose and meaning beyond our lives. We thank you so much for your grace that has won us. And because of that salvation, because of that hope, we run towards you. We run from our old lives. We run from the ways that we used to live so that you could become greater sin and selfishness would become less in us. Oh, how we need you, Lord God. May we live in desperate daily dependence upon you. No better way to live, no other way to live, no more joyful way to live than in complete abandonment and surrender to you. So help us, God. Thank you so much. We need you. We love you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.